Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to a new episode of Between the Lines. My name is Martin Gregg and this is my conversation with Matt McGinn about his excellent book Against the Elements, The Eruption of Icelandic Football. This is one of the most well-researched and interesting sports books I've read this year and if you've ever wondered why Iceland have enjoyed such recent success in international tournaments, then this will tell you how it happened. And here's a clue, it's not just the indoor facilities. As always, the story behind the story is what we focus on, and you'll hear how Matt interviewed Icelandic musicians and powerlifters, and even spent time aboard a fishing trawler as he sought to capture the elements of Icelandic character which have bred their sporting success. Enjoy. So Matt, I want to start by talking a bit about the renaissance of Icelandic football and I'm going to quote a little bit from, from the book. Um, you say here, for almost six decades, the Iceland team failed to qualify for a major tournament. Things began to change at the start of the 21st century. In 2016, the men's national team reached the quarter-finals of the Euros, beating England along the way. Two years later, Iceland became the smallest nation to qualify for a World Cup. The women's team, meanwhile, have reached three consecutive Euros and made the quarter-final in the 2013 edition. So there's obviously been this fantastic renaissance in Icelandic football, but can you talk a little bit about, I guess, your relationship to the story and also your relationship to the country? You know, why you decided to, to write the book and, and, you know, your reasons for, for believing you were the best person to do it, I guess? I suppose my, my I don't think I probably was the best person to, to do it, but I my excuse was that nobody else had. Um, so to go back to how I became involved in this and how the project started. Obviously, I was aware of Iceland's achievements uh, going back to 2013 when they narrowly missed out on on the Brazil World Cup. And then obviously the Euros in 2016, it was hard to avoid being engaged in, and caught up in, in what they achieved. Uh, but it was, it was in 2017, in the autumn of 2017, when the idea came to me to write the book. And I was working a shift at a newspaper, AS, in Madrid that I was working at at the time. And the TV channel was set to uh, the channel that skips around the different European qualification matches, depending on where the goals are going in. Um, and, and it was Iceland playing in Turkey for a place at the Russia World Cup. And the channel kept returning to this match because Iceland kept scoring. And that was the game that... I don't think it quite secured Iceland's qualification for Russia, but it, it very much put it in their hands and made it really likely. And at that point, I just wanted to read more about the story. So I you know, did, did the usual thing, had a search on Amazon and Google and, and, and whatever, and didn't find a book in English. So I thought that I'd take the plunge and, and have a go myself. That's interesting. I mean, you mentioned there about, you said, oh, you, you didn't think you were necessarily the best person to, to write the book. And the reason that I asked the question that way is because having read the book, it really feels like you are well-placed, really well-placed to tell the story. I mean, you have an understanding of the culture, uh, understanding of the football culture. And 
you seem to really connect quite deeply with a lot of elements to the story. So, I mean, had you ever been to Iceland before? Do you speak any of the language? Did you have any any of that before you started the project? No. So, what what I mean, I suppose, by not being the best person is that before before I started the project, like you say, I didn't speak Icelandic. I haven't lived in Iceland, so I was aware when I started that I was almost beginning from a bit of a deficit in terms of my understanding of the culture and the society and and those are the things that I wanted to write about so I was quite conscious from early on in the project that I wanted to immerse myself as much as possible and increase my understanding of Icelandic culture as much as possible remotely I suppose so that manifested itself by watching a lot of Icelandic cinema for example there's a, a website with a, a kind of online archive of Icelandic films. So I, I dived into that, read a lot of books, a lot of novels set in Iceland, academic literature about Iceland. And of course, through the interviews that I did, you know, when, when you're spending what is cumulatively probably, you know, over 100 hours talking to people about Iceland and what it means to them and, and, and what they think about their country, you you gain a lot of knowledge through that. So I think... By the time I came to write the book and the research had finished, I, th- I think I felt in as I felt as well educated about Iceland and as well connected and as immersed as I as I could be. And I believe at that at that point I I was well placed to write the book. But I think it was quite a long process to get to that point where I felt comfortable that I could do it justice. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that comes through. I think from reading this book, it seems that you are you know sitting on this on top of this mountain of research that you, you've you've conducted. It's it's. Um, it really comes through in the writing, which I think is a has a real authority to it. But I want to talk a little bit about some of the historical stuff that that you pick up on in terms of the research. I mean, you almost do like a, an origin story of Icelandic football, which is which I found really fascinating. And um, but I really I want to talk about this from a kind of research perspective because you know to give an example, you mentioned the war, the World War Two being important, where British soldiers are posted to Iceland um, and they had these intra forces matches, and, and these involved players from some of the best clubs in, in England. It's, it's such a curio. You say here, the war produced impossible combinations that could only exist in pub discussions and nowadays in fantasy football lineups. Uh, they exposed Icelanders to elite football. The players navigating the lava pitches in 1940 were not hedonistic students from Scotland, but some of the best players in the football league which is brilliant, but but you quote stuff like you, the, the Midnight Sun, you quote from, which is a weekly newspaper for troops in Iceland, you quote the Daily Herald, you quote letters home from unnamed officers. I mean, this is deep, like you're going really, really deep in this. So so where, where are you finding this stuff from? Are you digging into newspaper archives and, and such like? Exactly that, the, the British newspaper archive. I spent a lot of time trawling through that, trawling through PDFs of articles. So yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of really interesting stuff emerged from that, particularly, well, going before the war, when all of those incredible combinations of footballers were, were playing in Iceland. Going back to the mainly Scottish uh, university or amateur teams that would, that would travel up to Iceland, there were some really interesting little tidbits that came from those trips, you know, about, I think it was the Aberdeen University football team went up there and the the professor who organised the trip wrote a report of it in the local newspaper and wrote that they'd gone up there professedly to teach the Icelanders how to play football, but had taught them only the words to one man went to mow and here's to the good old whiskey. So there, there were loads of really interesting little little anecdotes like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, that, that was basically what Iceland's contact with 
the footballing world amounted to. These groups of students and people there for a you know a tour uh, with all the social tag-ons that that entails. And yeah, going forward to the war, often you speak to people about the reality of war, and it's it's often staving off the boredom is the main thing. And I think in Iceland that. The, 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 the troops who were stationed there did that by playing sport and by playing a lot of football. Yeah, so there are a lot of letters home that were published in local newspapers. So, for instance, I, I, I think the, the letter you're referring to or one of the letters you're referring to was from a, a soldier from Lincolnshire who wrote home and talked about these football matches. And that was published in the local newspaper there. Um, so there, there was really little interesting insights that was it was quite an arduous process to actually find them. But I was really glad I did because I think it, it adds a lot more depth to the story of Icelandic football than just going back through results of the national team and things like that, which yeah, I, was, I was quite keen to avoid in that introductory chapter which introduces the history of Icelandic football. Yeah, it's an interesting process to go through. It's hard, it's tough, you know, but it's almost like panning for gold, isn't it? And when you... You find these little shards. It's a buzz, isn't it? I mean, you must have been buzzed finding some of this stuff in, in the depths of the, the newspaper archive. Yeah, it's brilliant. I, th- I think it probably doesn't quite match the thrill of finding something in a physical archive. But when you're, yeah, when you're trawling through PDFs that have come up in quite a broad search where you've put Iceland in football between these years and most of it is nothing relevant at all it's you know snippets from the shipping forecast that happen to be on the same page as the football results so when you actually find something of substance yeah it is a real thrill and I think that that gives you those little moments give you the impetus to keep going when when it feels like the project as a whole is becoming a little bit overwhelming you come across some some notable discoveries here I think and there's a guy called Freddie Steele who's a character in the book he's the first ever manager of the Iceland national team I think he takes over in 1946 which is post-war tell, tell us a little bit about him and his I guess his significance in, in the annals of, of, of football history really so the place to start is is by looking at Freddie Steele the player who I think had his luck been better than it was would have been a far more um, far more of a household name in the, in the annals of English footballing history. He burst onto the scene for Stoke City in the mid-1930s, scored a lot of goals at the age of about 18, 19, in an era when players didn't really do that as much as they do now. You don't, I don't think you had as many precocious players back then. But he, he did his knee ligaments, which is obviously... Before medical procedures are what they are now was was pretty catastrophic, um, and as a result of that, he slipped into depression. So, what what looked to be a really promising career was cut short really quite quickly. He got through the depression by having hypnosis treatment and his knee recovered. But just when he was regaining some sort of momentum, there was the outbreak of World War Two. So he had the situation where he was really stifled as a player, but moved quite quickly into management. And that was how he wound up in 1946 as the first ever coach of the Iceland national team. And there's not a great deal known about his time coaching in Iceland. We know that he coached a club, a club called Fram up in Reykjavik and I, th- I think one or two other club sides and then took charge of a couple of national team games before, before returning to the UK. So, I, I, you know, I, f- I found his path interesting and, and I, it really began to engage me when I read about what happened when he returned to England. So... Going into the 1950s, he took charge of Port Vale and was a bit of a tactical innovator and achieved these really remarkable results for Port Vale. 
So I think it was the 1953 FA Cup, if I'm not mistaken. Certainly around then. And Steele masterminded this run to the semi-final of the FA Cup. And on the way, Port Vale, who were of the third division at the time. So, you know, pretty pretty lowly and with, with pretty um, scant resources. And they beat Blackpool, who had won the previous year with Stanley Matthews as the, the dominant player in that team. And what was interesting to me was that it appeared that this was the first time that 4-4-2 had ever been used by this this Port Vale team of Freddie Steele. Because I think in the UK, Alf Ramsey and the, the, the England team of the mid-1960s, the World Cup winning team, is, is generally credited with having pioneered that system. But it, it turns out that it was actually happening about a decade earlier in the Potteries. And, and there's really interesting archival footage of Port Vale players of, of that era discussing Steele in, in these really um, glowing terms about him as a tactical innovator and how he, he was untouchable as a, as a tactician. And I, th- I think it, there's a nice cyclical nature to this story because Iceland's success in the last 10 years has been overwhelmingly achieved with a 4-4-2. And as one of you know, relatively few teams who still employ that, that system to success, it felt like a really nice closing of the circle that you know, the coach who'd started it also was the pioneer of that, that formation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing to, you know, discover that happening at that time. I mean, because I think you reference the Jonathan Wilson book, Converting the Pyramid, and he has Victor Maslov as the first man to use a formation at Dynamo Kiev in the mid-60s. And you see, you know, he Maslow, Maslow undoubtedly come up with the idea independently because he wouldn't have been aware of what was happening in England many years before, but he, what he wasn't the first. This guy was like a decade ahead of him. And it, it, it appears that that really hasn't been documented until, until you wrote it down in this book. Not widely, no. I got in touch with the Stoke Sentinel and one of their journalists there helped me out with, um, you know, finding a bit more information about it. But yeah, certainly outside Stoke and, and that area, I don't, I don't think it's particularly well known, which is a bit of a shame. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You were talking before about how um, you're studying for a PhD at the moment, and I'd imagine the levels of research you have to conduct for that, I mean, did... Did that play into some of the, the stuff? Because it, it is, it is a, a real skill research, you know, and it sounds like you've really gone deep here. Did you feel one thing fed into the other here? I quite enjoy that the meticulous 
research in a in a perverse kind of way probably because because of those nuggets that you find and that give you that little boost of adrenaline i think what i've the thing that i drew from academia that helped me in the process of the book was this idea that I, i felt really uncomfortable passing judgment on something until i felt like i really was in possession of a lot of information about it so whether that were whether that was interviewing the right people or more than one of the right people or conducting quite meticulous research I, yeah i didn't i didn't feel particularly comfortable casting judgment on it on something until i had gone quite deep into it so i suppose maybe that's the the academic side influencing how how i went through the process talked a little bit about the historical research stuff i think another way that you you broaden the scope of this book is by traveling um you pop up in different places obviously you spend time in iceland it seems like you traveled in norway at one point you're in oviedo in spain <laughs> i mean just for people that haven't read the book there's some amazing stuff like you spend five days in, on an icelandic trawler you're interviewing powerlifting champions you're interviewing musicians i mean you you go to a lot of different places here i mean were you on the road quite a lot with this book traveling and, and tracking down and and people to speak to yeah so i probably made yeah i mean i made several trips to Reykjavik just to do interviews and the way uh you know the geography in iceland works is that the overwhelming number of people are based around Reykjavik so that that was quite straightforward from a logistical point of view in terms of speaking to the relevant people but yeah i i, I tried to get around quite a lot i think I wanted to investigate how Icelandic society and Icelandic culture has influenced football and has left a mark on the football team that, that Iceland or the football teams that Iceland have produced recently. And in order to do that, I think I needed to travel around and see as much as possible and speak to as many people as possible. And that's where things like going on the trawler come in. I think fishing is is such a it's it's key to Iceland economically and emotionally, I think. So it felt like a very natural place to go to try and to try and watch a match in in somewhere that felt you know quite quintessentially Icelandic. And the way that that came about, I think, reveals quite a lot about the, how the networks in Iceland work. So you mentioned that I went to talk to a, a powerlifter. So this took place in a gym on the outskirts of, of Reykjavik, which is kind of everything you'd expect from a powerlifting gym, an old industrial unit with tractor tyres and car axles for lifting, knocking around the smell of rubber in the air. And it's, it's a place that's owned by Hafthor Bjornsson, who recently has become, the, I think in 2018, he was the world's strongest man and also is uh, the mountain in Game of Thrones. It's probably how he's better known. And I didn't speak to him, but I spoke to another another guy at the uh, there who's also a world powerlifting champion. And it was while speaking to him, we were talking about... So when I say we, I mean myself and Joseph Fox, who's the photographer who I worked with. We were talking about how we wanted to get onto a, a trawler to watch, watch a match on there. And there was someone in the gym who, you know, was mid-squat and turned around and was obviously listening into what we were saying. He said, oh, my, my mate is the, uh, is the captain of, of a trawler. I'll give him a ring and see if, see if he can help you out. So he just gives him a ring, gets off the phone 30 seconds later and says, yeah, no problem. Here's his number. He'll take you out. And there was, there was no, uh, you know, no red tape, no issues around insurance. It was just a case of, yeah, let's, let's get it done. I think that, that captures something about Iceland. I think this idea that, if you want to get something done, you can just get it done. And also, 
the fact that from a from from the perspective of writing the book, once I'd spoken to maybe five or ten people, particularly in Icelandic football circles, from their contact books and their willingness to put me in touch with other people, I felt like I could get in touch with basically everyone I needed to in order to to, to write the book. It's interesting because you're also you know in doing that you're you're chasing this um, encapsulation of Icelandic character or, or grit and you know something that's that's common to 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 these different professionals in their fields I guess you know so for me that's the thing that like they tied it together really well I remember speaking to David Winner about this when in his book uh, Brilliant Orange and you do I, I think you do need to be careful when you step outside into these other realms but if you have that if you have that goal of trying to track down a commonality between them I guess which is was your whole point is this idea of grit wasn't it it was like something that that was transferable to all these different disciplines that, that that's inherent in Icelandic character yeah exactly so I think this go this goes back to Icelandic Icelandic history and, and the culture that has emerged from that so if you go back not not even that long you know towards the start of the or the first half of the 20th century which is the lifetime of the grandparents or the great-grandparents of the current crop of footballers. So it's not going back really far to get to a a time in Iceland where it was still overwhelmingly based on fishing and farming, which both are obviously quite arduous, difficult professions, particularly in a bit of the world where the ground will sporadically erupt and the sea is volatile and extremely cold and so on. So I think that instilled values like hard work, stoicism, overcoming adversity... And those kind of things have filtered down through the generations and, and remain very prevalent still, um, particularly among the, the footballers. So, for example, Aaron Gunnarsson, the Iceland captain, has spoken quite a lot about how when he pulls on the Iceland shirt, he draws upon that collective hardship that his ancestors managed to, to overcome and that you know he draws motivation from that. So I think that's quite an interesting illustration of how, how football can feed from what happens around it and what has happened around it. And some of the, even the musicians that they've produced, you reference Sugar Cubes and Bjork and Sigur Ross, one of my favourite bands. They're, they're probably, I mean, if they're punching above their weight, that, that terribly cliched phrase in football terms, then they, they, they do so in, in, in music as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you've listed a few, a few uh, artists there. And it, it, the thing is, in music, it's across all genres. So you've got, you know, everything from Bjork... Not sure which how you how you'd put Bjork in a genre, um, through to Sigur Ross, right across to classical composers who've who've won awards and won Oscars for the score for scores for films in recent years. You mentioned grit earlier, and I think that so that essentially refers to passion and perseverance for long term goals, to live it, living your life in the long term rather than the short term, and I think. That, that is quite embedded in Icelandic culture. I think there's a kind of patience and a, a willingness to work hard to achieve something quite far away in the future, which certainly helps in football. Um, because if you're a 10-year-old and you, you want to become a professional footballer, it's going to be a long path. And I think Icelandic culture equips people with the mental tools to make the most of their talent whether that's in music or football, it doesn't really matter. And I think that, that contributes quite a lot to what you, what you mentioned, to the punching above the weight or the per capita or whichever way you want to frame it. But this ability of Iceland to, 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 to do more than it should effectively. But I, I think it's also important to acknowledge the, the political underpinnings to that. 
So Iceland is a social democracy and um, there's a lot of a lot of provision for people to pursue what they're interested in, whether that's music or sport or or anything else. So when we talk about the facilities in Iceland, there's a lot written about the indoor football pitches, for instance. It's important to recognise the political context that that emerges from. So looking specifically at that example, in, in 1992, there was an academic study uh, undertaken in Reykjavik and uh, academics from the University of Iceland interviewed 1,200 15 and 16-year-olds around Iceland. And they found quite alarming results, which, which revealed really high alcohol and cigarette consumption. So there was a lot of hand-wringing about, you know, this hedonistic street corner youth and, and, and where those problems could lead. But they also found a positive, quite a strong correlation between uh, 15 and 16-year-olds who participated in regular organised exercise. They found that th- those, those people had a, a far lower tendency to drink and smoke excessively. So that created this, uh, and there were several more academic studies throughout the 90s that kind of reinforced this idea that organised sport it delivers positive social outcomes effectively. So that is the, the kind of political context which allows this massive investment in football facilities to take place. So I think when looking at, you know, it's very easy to just look at the, the, the finished infrastructure and the finished uh, building and, and look at the impact of that. But I, I found it really interesting to look a step back and see how, see the processes behind, behind that actually taking place. Yeah, that's interesting. The facilities um, aspect to it is, I, I found that really, really fascinating. And I guess before I read this book, if somebody had asked me what was, the, you know, the secret to Iceland's success, I, I would have said facilities, you know, because we all think of these, you know, you, you talk about them being like military hangars, which I thought was a, was a great image. Talking from a personal point of view, I mean, I stay in Scotland, uh, a northern European country with, with not very good weather. And the lack of indoor facilities here has undoubtedly held us back in the last 30, 40 years. But the facilities argument is, is far too super in terms of a sole reason for, for the renaissance if you like but 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 they have undoubtedly helped you know and I think you make that point strongly in the book these huge indoor facilities but also these mini pitches as well which you talk about which again not like nobody really talks about them everyone just thinks about these big spaceships you know but they, but to, to talk a little bit about you know the, the upside of these facilities how they have fed into it, both the big indoor complexes and these little mini pitches community based facilities as well yeah, so dealing first with the indoor pitches, I think the first one cropped up in 2000. It's hard to keep track of how many there are because they keep popping up all over the place. I think there are about eight more built up until 2008. So the construction of these indoor facilities rode the wave of the, the financial boom in Iceland and then stopped very abruptly with the financial crisis in 2008. What, what happens when you speak to Icelandic people about these facilities Two, two things. The first thing is that they point your attention away from the indoor facilities and towards these mini pitches that you've mentioned. So these are effectively AstroTurf, five-a-side, enclosed pitches, of which there are about 155 around the country. What that means is that every neighbourhood, pretty much every village, has a pitch. A lot of them uh, use the the uh, thermal energy to heat them during the winter so that when everything else is covered with snow there's still this green rectangle of grass where where people can play and i think those 
serve the same kind of purpose as the cages in South London, which have received a lot of attention for supposedly producing players like Jadon Sancho and, and nurturing their, their ability to create on the football pitch. And, and the impact, I think, was similar in Iceland. You, you know, you've, you've got all of these pitches where kids can go and express themselves and play outside of the organised training sessions. The second thing that Icelandic people, or some Icelandic people will say, is that they are worried about the sudden arrival of all these plush facilities, which was, some, which was a, a narrative that surprised me because I thought they would be universally, unanimously, you know, venerated as a reason for Iceland's success. But what I found actually was a lot of people view them as somehow contrary to the values that I discussed earlier, like hard work and overcoming adversity, because there's this perception that Icelandic footballers have to rely on their mentality in order to be better than other teams. And that mentality is forged in the wind and, you know, the, the rain and the cold playing outside. And there's a fear in some quarters that if players have these world-class facilities to, to develop in, then yes, perhaps they'll become technically better and tactically better, but perhaps they'll lose that mental edge that comes from playing outside and, and playing you know, to, to take the title of the book against the elements, which isn't, isn't an argument that convinces me particularly. I think the benefits of having these facilities far outweigh any, you know, potential hypothetical loss to mentality, which would be impossible to quantify or calculate anyway. But it's an interesting, it's, it's very interesting that people in Iceland hold that view, I think. It is, and I think that's where it intersects with the, the reason probably that, that, that most people engage with the story, which is this golden generation. Like when, when a small nation beats England, suddenly people in the UK sit up and take notice and say, what's going on here? And it's really interesting that you make the point that this Icelandic golden generation, they were produced before these indoor facilities came in. So they're not a product of these, you know, incredible big aircraft hangars where, where people are learning technical skills. They, they, they predate that. Yeah, yeah, they do. So to take the, the example of Gilfie Sigurdsson, who's obviously the most, you know, the, the fulcrum of that team, he, uh, he, he, when he was 10 or so, these pitches, like you say, hadn't been, hadn't been built yet. So his dad rented a warehouse space in which Gilfie and his older brother could practice football during the winter because there was nowhere else to play. So that, that shows... Well, I mean, A, it shows the fortunate position that Gilfie Sigurdsson was in, that his family were able to do that. But it also shows how transformative these, these facilities have been in that they've literally converted football from a four, five month of the year pursuit to an all round pursuit, which... I think the, the benefits of that are just immeasurable. I mean, there's other aspects, you know, that you cover in the book, like, you know, Iceland opened up its economic borders in the 90s, the Bosman ruling, coach education, all really, really important parts of this quite a complex process, which is very often just boiled down to people thinking that because players are now undercover that they that's the that's the solution to to all the problems but to, to move on a little bit one of the things i really liked about the book is you try different things you know you you you're not afraid to to spend a chapter on a, a icelandic trawler euro 2016 i think i like the way you, you dealt with it because you actually you, you get a player to narrate his experience of it so t tell us a little bit about that how did you get how did you get that material how did you get him to to, to do it and how did you get get the material back so the, the player in question is Birkimar Saverson, who played as the right back in Euro 2016 and in the 2018 World Cup. 
he spent most most of his career in Sweden or in, in I think Sweden and Norway, certainly in Scandinavia, and had just moved back to Iceland to Valur, which is his childhood club. When I was you know starting the research, so initially I just interviewed him, you know, a more normal interview, I suppose, looking at general things, not you know without having that chapter that he would narrate in mind. What what happened after that was that I read Das Reboot by Rafa Honigstein. And I really liked the way that he allowed players to... I can't remember which players it was. I think perhaps Mertesacker was one of them. But he, for the uh, 2010, I think... or Thomas Hitzelsberger it was. 2010 and 2014 World Cup. He had these chapters where it was the players' perspective of the tournament. And that struck me as a really clever way to discuss the tournament in a way that wasn't just running through the results and the news stories that arose during it but trying to deliver some kind of insight so I got back in touch with him and and discussed this idea and he was he was happy to do another interview in which we we talked more specifically about Euro 2016 and I I brought my laptop along and we watched highlights of each of the matches to kind of prompt his recollections and, and discussed it at quite a lot of length and then I wrote that up into the chapter which he had a look at and uh, and gave the okay to so that that was how that came about and I think yeah I wanted it to serve as a, a almost a, a break from or to, to, to give some kind of variation to the way the book was going I think it yeah it, it made it maybe less predictable for the reader which I hope works well rather than being jarring Just finally another aspect I want to pick up on and you've mentioned it before is the photographs in the book your collaboration with Joseph Fox which I, I thought was brilliant um, and it's such a, a perfect synergy because you have these amazing volcanic landscapes and some of the pictures are, are amazing T- tell us a little bit about you know how that collaboration came about So Joseph say a photographer who's who's based in Madrid and we'd worked together on a couple of things um, and when I went to him with the idea about the book I was always quite clear when the idea came to me that it would be really really interesting to have a photographer involved because Iceland is such a brutal harsh place that I think it's quite difficult for the best writer in the world to do it justice with words there's just something about having the, having that photographic element that adds so much depth to the narrative. Um, so I was really keen to to get Joseph on board, and he, luckily, he he'd been eyeing up a trip to Iceland for a long time, so he was he was keen on it as well. And we spent, in terms of how we actually did it in Iceland, I think we we wanted to we didn't want the photos to just reflect the text directly. We wanted the photos to pursue their own narrative in parallel to the text, I'd say is the best way to describe it. So what you have is not photos that relate directly to what's on the pages in the order that it's in the pages necessarily, but photos that capture the overall themes that run throughout the book and capture some of the, the places and people that you know helps helps to bring to life what I'm writing about. There's a fantastic picture in it of it's actually of a player taking a corner kick inside one of the, the indoor pitches and there's like three or four Icelandic kids just standing quite quite close to him. It's quite a simple picture but I think it I don't know, maybe it speaks to to community or something. it was just you know, it just kinda of really spoke to me that picture. It was I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. So yeah, it's brilliant. You've got a player lining up to take a corner and there's a shard of light coming through the fire escape from this indoor pitch and there's four kids one in a one in a Pokemon jumper and one in a Barcelona shirt 
just <laughs> right next to this 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 player taking a corner. I, I suppose it it demonstrates kind of visually the, this idea of a pathway from the youth to the the adult game in Iceland. That's that's I mean that's what what comes to mind when I look at it. Um, but yeah, there's there's loads like that, and actually. What's been really nice is that having the photographic element has allowed us to do things w- with this project beyond just the book. So, for instance, there's a, a publication called Girl Fans, which is a, a, a photographic zine, basically, which documents female fan culture, um, which is run by a woman called Jackie McCassie, who is based at, I think, Liverpool John Moores University. And because Joseph has so many pictures of of female fan culture and female players in Iceland, we, we've been able to collaborate with girl fans, and we've we've got an Icelandic edition of that coming out in the new year. So there's things like that, you know, which show how the photos have allowed this project to go beyond just being a book, which wouldn't I don't think would have been possible if it was just text. And yeah, just finally, the the, the stuff about gender equality is brilliant as well because Iceland, I think, leads the way in in terms of gender equality in so many different sectors, and football is just an extension of that. So the the women's teams are are celebrated just as much the way it should be. There's certainly a, a far smaller distinction than in the UK, I'd say. I, I wanted, I, I certainly wanted to discuss that in a chapter, um, but I, I think so. It's, it's important to say, firstly, actually, that the Iceland women's team was successful before the men's team. Uh, and you know they'll remind you of that in Iceland that despite all of the interest being attracted by the achievements of, of men's football women's football was there first and I think a lot of the themes that run throughout the book apply to both men's and women's football you know facilities coaching the deeper cultural societal things they all come together to produce the same outcome in, in both forms of the sport but yeah like you say Iceland in pretty much any kind of any kind of study generally comes out as the best place to be a woman in the world in terms of gender equality pay gap and so on it's not perfect obviously but it's you know it's better than a lot of places and I think that manifests itself in football you know they speak to the women's players and most of them will say we feel equal to the men we feel like we're on a par with them which I think is is really great and something that you could say in relatively few countries Thank you for listening to Between the Lines. Matt's book, Against the Elements, the Eruption of Icelandic Football, is out now. And you can reach Matt on Twitter at McGinn93. And just to let you know that our latest book, At the End of the Storm, Stories from Liverpool's Historic Title Win, is also out now in partnership with The Athletic. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.